the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Pastor resigns after controversial Gospel Coalition article. Was that the right decision? And later we're joined by Matt Sorens to talk about what is going on at the border. You're listening to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. So thrilled that you're with us today. If you've missed any of today's show, we'd love to invite you to go back and catch up on our podcast. Wherever it is you cast those pods of yours, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We also love connecting with you on social media. We are at Common Good Talk on the Facebook. The Facebook. Uh, All right, Brian. For our listeners who don't remember, I'm going to try to recap this, but I, mm-hmm. I don't actually want to talk about the story itself. I want to talk about what has happened since. There's a pastor named Joshua Butler in Tempe, Arizona. And last March, he drew a lot of controversy for writing an article on sexuality and holiness. It was actually an excerpt from a new book he wrote called Beautiful Union, A Beautiful Union, something like that. Anyway, it was... Um, I was not a fan of the article. It was not accepted widely. <laughs> it was not widely accepted. That's a great way to put it. In fact, there was a lot of pushback on mm-hmm. the article. And um, folks who had endorsed his book began to uh, recall their endorsements right. publicly <clears throat> because they realized there was a lot of pushback. A lot of them admitting they never even read the book. Right. Um, and the guy got into a lot of controversy. Essentially, he was going to be part of the Keller Institute that the Gospel Coalition is beginning, and they pulled the plug on him. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of people set him up for success, and then the, there was so much reaction he to the canceled. book. He was canceled. Yeah. yeah, it's a great way to put it. And again, I thought the article was horrific and gross and terrible. And yet I have compassion for yeah. the guy that the, he got treated the way that he the did. article was essentially an excerpt from the book that was coming out. And like you said, people were just surprised. Um, and there was any level of surprise from disgust. To, Whoa, I just can't believe they did that. Yeah. At the sexual imagery that yeah. he was drawing. Right. Like we've all read stuff on. Song of Songs right, or whatever right. else where there's sexual imagery tied back to, um, you know, to God and other. Th- but it was so graphic. Yeah, it was and really so graphic. And so much further than anyone yeah. has, had ever really read yeah. that it just raised a lot of questions. It was like, why did the Gospel Coalition, why did that person endorse them? Why yeah. did, and there was a lot yeah. of questions. And as you said, the Gospel Coalition, in my opinion, kind of sold them down the river. They definitely I mean, did. You put it on your website. You got editors and reviewers. You got to stand by your yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's been a lot of people that read this before it went online, including Gospel Coalition. Right. People, the people but... who endorsed his book went running away, like you said, saying, I didn't actually read it. Well, stand by your endorsement. Yeah. That's why yeah. I, I respect people like Preston Sprinkle who were like, I read I still it, endorse I endorse it. it. Yeah. I endorsed yeah. it, and I still stand by it. It and- is funny. I, As much as I hated the article, and I think the book is probably terrible, I appreciated Preston Sprinkle for that. I thought I actually respect that more than the ones who backed out, because you got to be a person of your word, I think, ultimately. Mm. But okay, here's what we really want to talk about. Just uh, last week, 
Joshua Butler, the author of that book in that article, he's a pastor at Redemption Tempe in Tempe, Arizona. He posted a resignation letter. He said, I love you to his church. You are my church family. And I want to share an update with you. He mentioned that the church had been updated about the uproar surrounding his article, that he and the church elders had taken some time to pray and process how to move forward. And ultimately, he said, I am resigning as co-lead pastor of Redemption Tempe. Mm. I have processed this with our elders and I'm writing this together with them with the desire to share my reasons for resigning with you. And he he made a few statements, one of which is he just didn't want to sort of keep like dragging the church through the mud Mm -hmm. of all of this controversy. But then he also said, we have found ourselves in an impossible situation. On the one hand, I feel called to step more into these public conversations around his book, Beautiful Union and Sexuality and Godliness. That's my words there. He said, on the other hand, I don't want to drag redemption into that public conversation Mm. with me. The toll of this controversy on many of our staff and leaders this month have been intense at both Redemption Tempe and other Redemption Arizona congregations. So Butler said that both he and the elders have agreed that for him to continue to speak out publicly about the controversy around the book would distract from the church's ministry. He says, I am committed to a process of repair with any members of Redemption who desire it. He apologized to the women in the congregation who have experienced sexual abuse, whom he had hurt with his words. And to be fair, the next printing of Beautiful Union will contain revisions based on upon a dozen additional sensitivity reviews Butler Mm. has commissioned. Okay, so essentially he also says he loves the church. He looks forward to worshiping together. Mm -hmm. Something else for the new season for him. Okay, so Brian, just pastor, outsider, what are your thoughts on the fact that he resigned? So I feel like there's so much more to this story. There has to be, right? I I really want to hear what the rest of the story, because I could see a couple different things here. One is the church is being nice, and they're like, dude, we love you, but you just put us in such an awkward spot. We're having to answer questions. It's tearing the church down. People in the church are mad about this. So it could be that the church kind of pushed him out the door and said, let's let's make this look. Yeah amicable right. and let's go right. let's call it a resignation that could definitely whatever. be something going on on the other hand he could have said this is now my calling and left the church behind mm. and i think you know, he even hinted at it i feel like i'm called to weigh in on these things and i don't want to make the church have to answer for me or this or that and i want to be like dude I so wish that you had stuck to your primary calling of the pastor of this church. Like, that's your calling. Your primary calling isn't author or speaker or whatever else. And so that's another route here. And I I just wish I knew which one. Maybe it's a little bit of both, where the church is just like, we just need some we just need some calmness some space here. Or some something space. from all of this. So maybe it's a little bit of both. But taken in its entire totality, I'm just like, this is just a messy situation of a guy who wrote a book that I don't want to read. Right. I find objectionable. Right. But it passed all the review process. Mm-hmm. People edited it. The Gospel Coalition put an excerpt. Uh, people endorsed it. Yeah. And now they're canceling him, running from the hills. His church may or may not be canceling him, or yeah. he's canceling his church. You just want to be like, I don't know, Aubrey. I just, it just feels like the whole thing feels messy. You're just like, oh, man, it it, it feels... Yeah, messy, I yeah, think, is the word I, I want to go with there's there. A, there's a part of me that, okay, like, I'm trying to think about this as an author and a pastor. If 
let's say I wrote something really controversial and I felt like it was starting to drag renewal church through the mud. I think in one sense, it is the most loving thing for the pastor to go, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm out. Like, I I don't want to do this to the church that I love deeply. So I will no longer be your pastor. I'm going to step away. But there's also a part of me going back to what you said, like, there's a part of me that feels like the way this story is posed, and we don't know the details, but mm-hmm. the way that the story is posed makes it seem like to me the elder said to Joshua, all right, you can choose to stay in this public debate about your book and about the nature of your book, or you can keep pastoring our church. And it feels like he chose the book. Like the yes. way they say, we're at an impossible situation. I want to keep in this conversation it about does. my book, but I can't do that and lead the church. Therefore, I'm choosing the book. It does. That feels a little sad to me. Mm-hmm. And I wonder at the end of the day, like, are we in, you know, we talk a lot about celebrity culture. We have a guest on later this week who's going to talk about Christian exceptionalism. Like, is he choosing sort of celebrity, a secondary calling when he should be choosing faithfulness to pastor his church? I don't know. And I can't judge that for him. It's a question that came up for me. It certainly feels like a possibility. Yeah. There are other options. There are other scenarios of how this played out. But what you laid out is certainly one of the high probabilities, and it is sad. Yeah, it's it's definitely a little bit heartbreaking. All right. Well, coming up next, we are joined by our good friend, Matt Sorens. He's the vice president of advocacy and policy over at World Relief. Uh, president Biden has sent like 1,500 troops to the border, and we're very curious what's going on. So he's going to help us unpack that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. We are thrilled to be joined of someone who is increasingly becoming a friend of the show, Matt Sorens. He is vice president of advocacy and policy at World Relief. We want to talk to him about the troops at the border and what in the world is going on. Matt, thanks so much for being here at The Common Good today. Okay, Matt. So for our listeners who just may not know what's going on in the news, can you talk to us about the fact uh, why are all of these troops headed down to the border? Yeah, I mean, this is something that the previous administrations have done on occasion as well, um, when there are a large number of people showing up at the border. Um, I think in some ways, one thing that's really important to understand is from a, a legal perspective, troops, U.S. military troops cannot do domestic law enforcement functions. That's mm-hmm. part of U.S. law. So they are not there to actually interact with migrants in like they're there in more of a support capacity. I would argue, from my perspective, they're also there in sort of a messaging capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, The Biden administration, like the Trump administration before them, wants to show that they're serious about what's happening at the border. Mm. And at the same time, they want to show they want to convey to people around the world, especially in the Western Hemisphere, who might consider coming to the border because they've heard rumors that the border is open, which are not accurate rumors. Mm. Um, They want to convey to them with images, the border is not open, don't come. whether that's a fair use of our, our military's time and, and resources is, you know, probably debatable. Yeah. Um, but the, the hard reality is the Border Patrol, which is the agency that has the authority here, is very taxed right now, very under-resourced. And, and not just resources, because they actually have the funds to hire more people. They just don't have enough applicants to actually do that job. And um, they're doing a job that's not what most of them thought they were hired for. They're not, um, you know, chasing people trying to sneak into the country. Uh, they are helping to process people who are coming with their hands out saying, I'd like to request asylum. Mm. Mm. And, and Matt, and if anyone who's watched the news has heard of uh, Title 42, but uh, we don't really know what's going on. I read politicians' tweets 
saying crazy stuff about this. Can you help us understand what is Title 42 and uh, how does this all play into what you're describing right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think a lot of the politicians are not fully clear what Title 42 is either, from mm. as far as I can tell. Um, Title 42, and to be fair, I'd never heard of Title 42 until it went into effect three, a little more than three years ago, because my expertise is in immigration law, and Title 42 is not an immigration law. It's a public health law. It's a basically, actually rather old law that says in a public health emergency like a pandemic, you can relax certain other laws. So basically, our laws say that if you come to the U.S.-Mexico border and you can demonstrate a credible fear of persecution, the U.S. should give you asylum. Um, Title 42 said, actually, the U.S. is not going to give asylum because it would, you know, it would be a public health threat to have people, our U.S. officers sitting in a room and interviewing uh, an asylum seeker at the border. Hmm. Now, the other dynamic is what Title 42 has meant is people do not get deported back to their country of origin if they don't qualify for asylum. They just get turned back to Mexico. And most of these people are not actually Mexican. They're Central American or hmm. even Venezuelan or from other parts of the world. And the effect of Title 42, um, there's been a few effects. One has been, you know, it's just logical. If you walked from Venezuela to the U.S.-Mexico border and you got turned away and sent back to Mexico, you think you're going to walk back to Venezuela the next day or <laughs> maybe try again? Because, <laughs> right, right. You know, you put a lot on the line to try to get away from a bad yeah. situation. And that's where we've seen a lot of recidivism with Title 42, a lot of people trying multiple times. But the other dynamic of Title 42 is it only works to the extent that that's the goal when Mexico is willing to take someone back. Mm-hmm. So the Mexican government, obviously, sovereign country, they set their own rules. They don't have, they have a responsibility to Mexican citizens. They don't have a responsibility to Guatemalans or Hondurans or Venezuelans necessarily. And they have basically said they will take back country, people of certain nationalities, and they won't take back people of certain other nationalities. Mm-hmm. So the real large numbers of people being allowed into the United States to pursue asylum claims in the last three years have largely been from the countries that Mexico has said they wouldn't take people back from, Mm. which means the U.S. sort of had no choice but to follow our normal immigration rules. And that's, you know, that brings me to, like, from my perspective, rather than sending the military to the border, I would love to see the U.S. government send asylum officers to the border Mm. to actually process people in a timely fashion so those who qualify could enter and begin their lives in the United States and be authorized to work and actually meet serious labor demands that we have throughout the United States. Yeah. And those who really don't qualify, who are not fleeing a credible fear of persecution for the specific reasons under the law would not have, not have four years here, Yeah. you know, potentially working, which might be their actual intention, which then creates kind of a, a negative in, um, incentive to come even with a very marginal case. Mm. Um, if people came, were treated humanely, but returned, you know, in a more timely fashion, they, the word would spread quickly that this is not a good way to come. Whereas it, our view of World Relief is we definitely should not give up on our commitment to those who do actually have a credible fear of persecution, yeah. which yeah. is one of the proposals. Honestly, under Title 42, that's been the case for certain nationalities. And some of the legislative proposals and from the Biden administration as well have been to dramatically restrict who could access asylum in the United States. And we think that, you know, if these are people made in the image of God, yeah. fleeing persecution because of their political opinion, their faith, their nationality, there's a good reason that our laws offer protection to those people. And Matt, that's something I'd love to invite you to dive into a little bit deeper. I love when you come on and give us a Christian perspective on immigration, but specifically around asylum seekers. Why should we as Christians not give up on our conviction to help those who are fleeing for religious persecution or other reasons? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's rooted in this belief that all human beings are made in the image of God. 
and that has no exceptions. You know, it's, it's not people of this religious tradition or this nationality or this gender or, you know, born or unborn. Like from my perspective, every human person is made in the image of God and therefore their life has dignity and potential. And um, our asylum laws are really rooted in that biblical conviction that, that we believe life is pre- precious mm. yeah. and worth protecting. Yeah. And the hard reality is that there are people who have, who if they stayed in their country of origin would be killed, would be persecuted for a variety of reasons. Um, and our laws, which, you know, you could make an argument that we should update our laws and define our terms a little more carefully because we are working with laws that were developed in the wake of World War II. So there are, you know, they're dated laws, mm-hmm. but they specifically say that you, if you get to the United States and you can demonstrate a credible fear of persecution on account of your race, religion, political opinion, nationality, or particular social group, we will not send you back to danger. Mm. And if we believe that those people's lives have value, I believe it's really important that we respect and, and hold up due process for those for those who claim to meet that definition. You can't possibly know if someone has a credible fear of persecution without some sort of a process to, to verify that claim. And I'm also not so naive to say that I think everyone showing up meets that definition. I've spent lots of time on the border, mm. met people who I absolutely think do qualify, and met people who I think really, I mean, they're fleeing poverty, which I'm very sympathetic to, but it's not persecution. Mm. And that's where I wish we had more work-based visas, especially when we actually have significant labor needs in the United States right now, millions of more jobs than we have people looking for work. Mm. I know for those people who will be able to get a work-based visa at their consulate without having to make a dangerous trip to the border. But I think we should never turn our back on this idea that we, you know, we won't send someone back to persecution if they can make the case, if they can prove with evidence that they qualify. That's really good. Matt, um, <clears throat> you do a lot of connection work with churches. How can we, obviously we don't live by the border or anything, so how could local churches here remind us how we can get involved and help through World Relief? Yeah, you know, I think it's such a good reminder that here in Chicagoland and throughout the rest of the United States away from the border, I mean, I spend a lot of time at the border, but almost nobody stays there. They are, mm. they are going to communities like Chicagoland, like, well, wherever, usually they have a relative or they know someone, or maybe it's just a place they've heard of on television, um, that, you know, they want to go somewhere where they can find work, rebuild a life while they wait for their immigration court proceedings. Again, this is only for the, the share of individuals who, even under Title 42, have been allowed in to pursue an asylum claim. Yeah. Um, and World Relief works with lots of local churches to help care for those asylum seekers, the best that we can with very limited resources, whether that's asylum um, you know, consultations with our legal services team, or we have a program we call the home program, which is very similar to the way we bring a team from a local church around a, a refugee family that was vetted overseas and comes into the airport. Um, but this is for asylum seekers. With the, the big difference is asylum seekers are not authorized to work when they first arrive, which mm-hmm. is actually a real challenge because with refugees, our big push is to get people into employment within the first you know, two, three months, have them being economically self-sufficient. Our laws, and I think they're rather dysfunctional, but they actually prohibit people who are seeking asylum. They're lawfully present in the country while they wait for the court hearing, but mm. they're not allowed to legally work and provide for themselves. Wow. Which begs the question, how do you, I mean, there's also not usually a lot of governmental support for those individuals, um, certainly not at the federal level. The city of Chicago has done a little bit, um, but, you know, it's very limited support that's available. So our home teams basically will bring resources from a church or sometimes it's a church that has a parsonage available or you know, access to some housing and we'll say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to help this family uh, um, adjust, get on their feet and go through the process to be able to be authorized to work, which will take probably six months to a year. Mm -hmm. Um, But to have a plan to support them 
and, you know, get their kids into school, get, yeah. um, get them support that they need, um, as well as access to legal services. Oh, it's so fantastic. Matt, we always love having you. Matt Sorens is the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief. You can find out more at worldrelief.org. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's the end of the show, and at the end of the show, we always like to put a smile on your face mm-hmm. or make you laugh. Brian, I was uh, over at BuzzFeed, one of my favorite places to go for articles that are just sort of nonsensical and don't really matter. But they're talking about 22 expectations, traditions, and social norms that people think need to be abolished like yesterday. And uh, one of the things that they... Um, one of the things that it says at the top is all of this is just peer pressure from dead people. If we stick to traditions, that's funny. And I don't think these are like uh, these are kind of funny. This is almost like it grinds my gears. It's this is why I appreciate that. List. My gears. Because at first yeah. I was like, again, what are the traditions that should be abolished? You know? Yeah. Uh, racism. <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever. Uh, you're like, yeah, that's we should all agree with that. No, these are more like annoyances. This is like a BuzzFeed grinds my gears. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think this is a fun one. So here's the first one, Brian. You and I are both going to really appreciate this. Number one, tradition that needs to be buried. Tipping. Just pay the server a real wage and stop leaving it up to the customer, they say. I think that's a good one. Uh, I'll go ahead and share the second one. Uh, This one's a little dark. Are you ready for it? Mm -hmm. Funerals. The person is already dead. That's for the family, though. That's for the live people. Have you found, though, that funerals have changed? The same way weddings have changed, where, you know, I don't know the last wedding I did in a church, right? Like, people aren't getting, like, weddings have changed culturally. Yeah, yeah. Funerals, in a weird way, I feel like, I don't do a ton of them, but I feel like they've become less formal. The people la- are, yeah, yeah, uh, I find more people getting cremated yes, and not doing that. That's true. And there's, there's much less, we're going to do a service, we're going to drive to the mm-hmm. to the cemetery, yes. we're going to do a lunch afterwards. Yes. Now it's a lot of like, yeah. again, I don't do a ton of them, but it, it feels like ones that I've done, it's a lot of like, we're going to do the viewing and the service at the funeral home and be done. And that's, then just family's going to go to the cemetery the past, or hold something. The past few that we've done, that's exactly what they've been. And they've even been called celebrations of life, mm-hmm. not funerals, which I think people are trying to put a more, I guess, a more positive spin on it. But they have changed. You're exactly yep, yep. right. Number three, uh, I I would not just do birthday cake. In fact, I would do wedding, wedding. cake on this one. Smashing someone's face into their birthday yeah. cake. <laughs> Let me just go to the wedding cake one. I never understood that. What was that? They're like, like feeding each other and they always smash it. And it's always like this dance. Like, yeah. oh, I'm going to get you. And everyone now is like. Yeah. It's, and I it's can't, cringy. As the man in the in the relationship, I did not do that to Carrie, nor did she do it to me. Yeah. Well done. I can't imagine that a bride is excited about There's that. There's no way. She's got her makeup done, her hair's done. She's got this very expensive dress on. Like, she does not want cake all over And you know her. who should know that? The husband. The husband should the husband. definitely know that. Uh, number four, I couldn't agree with this, this one more. This is very funny. Uh, and I would even eliminate the word over the top here, but we'll use their language. <laughs> the over the top gender reveal party. Those are crazy. Can My we just call a these. cultural timeout on these? It is so insane. My sister had one and it was so over the top. She invited like 50 people. She had it catered. She had like, like a, there was like a machine gun. I mean, that's not right, but it had like paper machete of the color. It was pink. 
She blasted it off. This I mean, is it was be a, a whole thing. This is going to be a get off my lawn thing. Yeah. Like, my kids are in their teens, and this wasn't going on when my kids were born. Definitely not Definitely. going on. Uh, now, I do need to share this info. I've shared this before. We did not find out the gender of our child before they were born Ever? with any of all three of them. <gasps> no way! So you couldn't have had one if you wanted nope, to. Nope. But we still. did not find out with wow, any of our children. Oh, that's fun. So they were surprised every time. I said that's to fun. I said to Carrie Carrie was like the driver of that, but I was yeah. all for it. And we part of our thing was like, how many things in this world can you really be yeah, surprised by? That's so, great. I love that. That's so cute. What helped was we had a girl then a boy, so by the third you're like yeah, so we de- good. we definitely found out, especially by the third, because I had, had two boys, and I was like, if it's not a girl, I just am going to need some time to process. Like was I it, don't. Uh, you love your son as much I as your other sons. I'm not saying that. Love my son. But was it hard? Oh, I mean, I bawled my eyes out at the ultrasound because I wanted a girl. So, and I just, I also just knew God was finally giving me a girl. It was a surprise pregnancy, a wonderful surprise. I mm-hmm. love it. Not an accident, but definitely a surprise. And uh, so I thought, surely this means it's a God girl. Me with a girl. And so I needed that. So when my precious, wonderful son, who I love so much, can't imagine life without him, was born, I was ready for it. You know what I mean? I needed some time to process emotionally. All right. This one's funny. Number five, a tradition that needs to be abolished. Presenteeism. When showing up to work is more important than literally anything else. This says, I have colleagues coming in when they're sick. This is funny. I used to work in environments where, like, the person would literally, like, they're in They'd be pale. Their face would be snotty. Yes. They have like a cold pack around their throat and they're coming into work like it's like virtue signaling, I guess. Presenteeism. I haven't heard that before. And you're like, you're making us all sick. Please go home. I, doesn't it feel like this is less likely to happen now post COVID? A hundred percent because you can work remotely. Right. right like right, right. And people are so much more concerned with germs, et cetera, mm-hmm. than they used to be. Yeah. Uh, the next one. This is an interesting one to go for. Using the same first names through generations of boys isn't carrying on the surname enough. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah. My cousin's kid is the seventh of his name, as in Bob Jones, the seventh. He's just a little kid, but he's the seventh. That's actually the funny. The funny thing is, he said, his dad, the sixth, goes by a nickname, and his grandfather goes by a different nickname. <laughs> They're not even their middle names. They're completely made-up nicknames. It's interesting. <laughs> that does tend to happen when it's like the third. Somebody's called Junior. Somebody's called, you know, Bob. The yep. other one's Robert. AJ, you know? yeah. you're going to need to do number seven because I am now out on this list. Oh, yeah. No, Brian loves this one. Uh, this says, I love my lawn, but grass that has to be maintained is kind of dumb. That's Brian's happy place. You love mowing the lawn. So that's not, that's, that's definitely That's just not written something. by somebody who can't maintain their lawn. I think that's it. That's, I, did I write that? That might have been me. Exactly. I might have submitted that Number one. Number eight. This is a weird one. Oh. Very, very non-biblical. Wow. Uh, respecting parents and elders, no matter what. Some of them are just bad people. <laughs> I think that's the outlier there. Let's 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 be a culture that respects our elders and parents. Let's let's let I agree. Let's uh let's You need to do the next do one. This okay, is yeah. very woman. This is a very woman centric. All right. There are a lot of weirdly accepted social norms around pregnancy, asking newlyweds when they're gonna try for a baby, assuming a woman is pregnant because she's not drinking. Assuming a woman is pre- assuming a woman is pregnant because she's gained weight in her belly area and touching a woman's belly without her consent. Women are women before they are mothers. Can we please remember that? I don't even think we have to put that caveat. The touching women of are the people. Belly is don't weird. do that. Period. Yeah, the touching of the. You know what's so funny though is there's this very pregnant woman at our church and she's adorable. And I I watched myself have an out of body experience where I almost went to touch her 
belly. And I was like, what are you just stop it? That's so, so funny. I immediately put my hands down. But I, told I wanted you, to. I told you my Fire. rule of thumb is that the woman's water could break in front of me in the church lobby and I'm not bringing it You're up. like she could be on all fours she giving could. birth. I and I will in not the hospital visiting. I will not mention her being I'll pregnant. I'll visit the baby and go, oh, you guys were having, I didn't even know. <laughs> Uh, That's good. Number uh, 10 is interesting. Super expensive and extravagant oh, weddings. Yeah. We talked about this earlier. Number 11 is also quit mm-hmm. putting the cake in the wedding at the wedding. So we, we got that one already. <laughs> okay, I got to read this one too. I think this is gross too. One more wedding one. The groom pulling off the garter with his weird. teeth and throwing it into the crowd of single men. Similarly, bride throwing bouquet to crowd of single men. That's just weird and gross. It yeah, it's is. really terrible. It is. All right. Well, if there's any traditions that you think need to be abolished, let us know on social media at Common Good Talk. Otherwise, Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com